I'm your host, Paul Rabel, and welcome to Suiting Up Podcast, a show where I delve into the stories of some of today's athletes, entrepreneurs, and entertainers, interviewing them and unpacking the psychology of their success. Jay Williams is a former basketball player for Duke University and the Chicago Bulls. Today, he's a college basketball analyst for ESPN. He's an entrepreneur and investor. I grew up a diehard UNC basketball fan, and I told him that, but mainly because of the influence of my father and brother, although collectively all three of us grew up mourning the aftermath of the Jay Williams-Duke-UNC rivalry game era, where he was a two-time college basketball player of the year, both his sophomore and junior year. He won the national championship with the Dukies his sophomore year and graduated from the university in three years. Oh, and he also had his jersey retired on senior day when he was a junior. So if that doesn't satisfy any student-athlete requisite, well, I'm not sure what will. More impressive, though, is Jason's thought leadership, his openness, vulnerability, an example he sets for all of us athletes. We'll strike that. All of us people. Jay lives in Brooklyn, about three miles from me, and when I pitched him on this podcast, he invited me, actually mandated that we do it at his place, which shows the type of guy he is. He wanted an intimate environment and is relationship-driven first. And if you don't know about his post-college story fully, now you will. He's written a book and is a New York Times bestselling author. He was drafted number two overall to the Bulls and was rookie of the first month of his NBA career. Then tragically, Jay suffered a career-ending motorcycle accident. Since then, he's battled with depression. He attempted suicide and lead on his family very much for the support that they gave him. And since then, he rose to a place where he feels, without all the aforementioned, he wouldn't be as happy and fulfilled as he is today. It's truly an inspiring story. I know you'll enjoy it. So take this time and listen to Jay Williams in our latest conversation on Suiting Up Podcast. So I've been sending my mother, who's a UNC Hoops fan, now a fan of Jay Williams, of course, although she graduated from ECU, Shout out pirates. Anyway, pro flowers since I was in college. And this time of year especially, it's the perfect time to capitalize on fall. You know, the pumpkin spice lattes, scented candles, and fallen leaves. I choose to use pro flowers versus other services in addition to their beautiful bouquets because of how fresh the flowers stay for a long period of time and often accompanied by a vase. Pro flowers bouquets are guaranteed to stay fresh for at least seven days or your money's back. And now, suiting up pod listeners, you can't lose because no matter which bouquet you send, you'll get 20% off an order of $29 or more. And that's mainly because this company, our podcast, and you are awesome. So to get 20% off your bouquet of flowers of more than $29, go to proflowers.com and use my code CROSS at checkout. That's C-R-O-S-S-E. That's proflowers.com. Use code CROSS at checkout. Proflowers, giving you more bloom, for your buck. Thanks for uh, having me in your apartment. This place is unbelievable. Dude, it's, it's it, so it, good. I'm glad we were finally able to connect after about uh, 20 text messages and about 100 DMs on Twitter. Yeah, yeah. And, a, uh, <laughs> in, and actually an NCAA uh, sponsored <laughs> event where we met. <laughs> yes. Hysterical. Yeah, that's where it all started. <laughs> because I want to I wanna start there is uh, we had scheduled uh, this to begin recording about an hour and a half or two hours ago, and you got called in immediately through Outside the Lines to cover um, what is the uh, one of probably the most um, talked about topics in sports at the moment, 
Um, I do want to uh, get your opinion on on where activism through the NFL is going. But right now, there's a lot of news that's come out around an FBI investigation about the NCAA and coaches and and AAU coaches and basically, you know, substantial evidence that suggests that there may be a time that that's that's close to us right now where there will be some action and implementation around the former NCAA process in not paying players for their performance in the NCAA for years uh, leveraging image and likeness and and universities to structure these massive broadcasting rights deals selling merchandise um, uh, a, a Duke alumni that you're probably close with in, in Jay Billis has done a great job of covering it from a legal perspective, but you have uh, been active over social media and voicing your discontent around how the process has gone. This feels like potentially the canary in the coal mine that might ignite some actual action around it, but long-winded way to intro and, and give the floor to you uh, basically on what you were just discussing with OTL and ESPN. Yeah. Um, Something I actually didn't discuss with OTL that I'm glad we have time to get into this now, Paul, is the fact that, you know, when I I got hurt in a really bad motorcycle accident and that hindered my career. And as I was trying to find out what I wanted to do with my life, not who I wanted to be, what I wanted to do, because I think for a lot of people, you're defined by what you do. Mm-hmm. Now, that's a longer conversation, but... I was trying to find out how do I make money and I got hold through my accountant that there was this business endeavor that was about to occur and it was the start of a sports agency and the sports agency was led by a guy named Lou Ceruzzi who was a billionaire. He did over 10,000 square feet of real estate in New York City. He just recently passed away. Uh, We had a guy named Charles Grantham who was the head agent um, who ran the Players Union for a while really good friend, still a mentor in my life. And then we had somewhat of a wild card, a guy named Dean Kapnick, who put together the whole team. Okay. He was our money guy. We came into the business to make money. I got a crash course about how it is to be an agent and how things operated. During my time doing that, Hmm. I saw things that absolutely shocked me because we're all, we all have the cloak over our eyes as regular human beings who are not entrenched in this. And as a player, I just wanted to play. I knew that shoe companies were after me. That was great. But I didn't take time to think about their influence. I didn't take time to think about, did I have a financial advisor or a runner for an agent offering me money? Yeah, but my family was decent. We were okay financially. I didn't need to take money. Did I want to take money? You're damn right I wanted to take money. I felt like my value add was going to be leveraged by the school I was going to, and they were going to make money. But the overall scheme of this came down to working for the agency, I saw deals that were being done with different AAU teams. And AAU teams are 501c3s, okay? So essentially, Hmm. you're allowed as an agency to give money to AAU, right? Which is AAU is pretty much like a a grassroots program for basketball. It's where all these agents, all these coaches pay attention to these kids and where they're from. And in particular, you know, we gave $250,000 to an AAU program in return for a kid to be delivered to us. Now, this is written about 2009, Yahoo Sports, Kevin Love. I openly talked about this in my book. And Yahoo Sports broke the story, and the whole thing kind of crumbled. But we also gave money to other programs for kids. And I've had assistant coaches reach out 
to people in our program, in our in our business, saying, hey, this kid is going to you guys. Now I expect a cut of this. And it was the first time I started to say, oh, wow. So college coaches are taking a part of this. Hmm. Okay. And then I started putting it together. Okay, so if you're a college coach and you're not making the same money as the head coach, which the head coaches make exponentially more than assistant coaches, say you're making $250,000 or $300,000. As an assistant. As, a, as an assistant. So how do I get money paid to me on the back end where I can make more money? And as a head coach, I don't want you going to another organization, especially if you're a big-time recruiter. So in a way, I don't – I know, but I don't know. I have plausible deniability, right. okay? Uh, that, this is the way the game is broken down. And then as an assistant coach, I'm like, oh, look, I've been recruiting this kid. I know that I have a relationship with this kid because the shoe company that we're in bed with already has kind of funneled this kid to me. Hmm. I have relationships with different agents. Maybe I can orchestrate a deal with an agent. Okay, because this is what we did. Yep. So the AU coach, the assistant coach, whoever maybe, hey, I can deliver this player. What percentage of the cut do I get? You know, do if you're an agent, you get four percent. I want two percent. Yep. If you're an agent, I, we get twenty percent of marketing. I want ten percent of marketing. Mm -hmm. And deals were orchestrated that way. So for me, today was not a shock. Uh, today was something that I've seen for since two thousand and nine, and something that's been going on in the game for the past thirty years. Mm. And in a way, the NCAA is obsolete. It took the FBI two years, two years of just gathering data mm -hmm. to figure this out. How long has the NCAA been around? And yeah. they still can't figure it out. Right. So when we get into this whole idea of amateurism, Paul, there hasn't been amateurism in college sports for a very long time. Right. We just choose to think of it that way because it's the last bastion of purity within right. sports. Our next sponsor's product has been a big utility for me, as I'm always on the go. Bombfell is an easier way for men to get better clothes. You complete a simple questionnaire and are then matched with a one-to-one -one stylist who's dedicated and personal to your likings. When you sign up, you pay $0, and you only pay for the clothes you keep, period. Also, Bombfell is the only styling service that does not charge any fees to work with them. Also, also, if you're not like me and you don't have time to hop on the web and pick out items or you've noticed your partner is just unfashioned, Bombfell is providing an option to sign up on behalf of your partner. So check that out. Now, hashtag suiting up potters. I negotiated with Bombfell to get a $25 offer for our listeners exclusively. So to capitalize on this purchase, you can visit bombfell.com forward slash Rabel and then go from there. That's B-O-M-B-F-E-L-L.com forward slash R-A-B-I-L. Bombfell. It's a straightforward and easy fashion service I recommend you all get on board for. I saw that $27 million was claimed as profit, according to Equity and Athletics, from uh, Louisville basketball last year. That, I mean, that, that's a huge business just with Louisville. Yes. Right. One of the hundreds of or maybe thousands of basketball programs across divisions that report up to the NCAA are part of the NCAA, underneath the NCAA umbrella. Um, so there's there's a difference for me who who, who I, I'm not as uh, as 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 educated in this area as you or we mentioned Jay Billis 
Um, I've read the headlines about what's come out from the two-year FBI investigation. But like, what then happens? Because if they're just pinching AAU coaches and college coaches who were involved in this scandal, then the NCAA can say, well, we're just cleaning out all the, all, you know, kind of all the bad guys, and we're going to continue to go operate as amateurism um, in, in, in not paying our athletes and continue to funnel money to the coaches and, and, and just go until we're, until we're slapped again Do with a second Do you know where fine. the term amateurism came from? I don't. There was a, a case, uh, I think in the 50s, where a player, and I'm losing sight of his name, but a player died on the football field and he was married. And his wife tried to sue, sue. the team. Mm-hmm. And they found a loophole by saying this is amateurism. Mm-hmm. And it was a liability case that they were able to get around. Yep. And that's when the term amateurism kind of started. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's um, Where does it go from here? It's going to be a slow unraveling. Mm-hmm. Jim Gatto, who is the head of global sports marketing for Adidas, has been a person I've known since I've been 14 years old. He's a great man. And I don't want to label any of these people, coaches, as crooks because that's – that's the way the game's been played for a yep. long time. That's how deals have been made. And these are all like handshake deals. Exactly, handshake presumably. deals. Yeah. If you've ever seen the movie Blue Chips or He Got Game, yeah. they were based off real shit that was happening, yeah. by the way. Okay, let's not lose yeah. sight of that. Yeah, yeah. Um, so for me, I, it's going to be a slow burn. Don't mm-hmm. think for one second if the FBI has tapped the phone of Jim Gatto that he did not have conversations where he was talking about competing offers mm-hmm. from other entities or other schools that were Nike schools, Under Armour schools, other agents, whatever it may be. He Those conversations, I'm sure, will implicate other people to be you know, called uh, to the stand on different issues. So this is going to blow open. And as it relates to the NCAA, it, this is an institutional issue. This is way bigger. This is from the top all the way down. Yep. So now that people understand that this is how the game has been worked for the past 30 years, where has the NCAA been? Well, you have six people on the task force in Indianapolis. Yep. Six. That's okay? It. You see most of those people in Indianapolis go home at four thirty-five o'clock. Uh, they are not allocating the right kind of resources to be able to adapt and pivot quickly enough to deal with this. There's a body of work for the past 30 years that proves that. Yep. And when you have Mark Emmert, who's making $2 million a year, mm. you have the schools that, I mean, this is not 30 years ago where 40 years ago where head coaches are making $70,000 anymore. Rick Bettino was making $6.7 million. I can compare his salary to the likes of NBA coaches, the right. highest level NBA coaches. There's no difference. And NFL coaches. The business has gone past the point of being deemed as collegiate it's a it's a multi-billion dollar business this sounds very similar to what we're seeing with the massive four tech platforms Mm -hmm. google facebook amazon um and apple um, more others than than more some than others evading taxes uh through creative uh loopholes in really and then even on the content side what, what we saw with facebook um Taking on those advertising from from um, you know Russian affiliates around the election, um, and them claiming that they're not a news or traditional media outlet, they're a platform, and it's difficult to track that. But like what it comes down to, and Scott Galloway, who's going to be a guest on our show, says this uh, as professor at NYU Stern, is that they can certainly filter through uh, the, the 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 fake news. 
it eats into their profit margin. Hmm. And with the NCAA, you flagged the insurance about the football player who died on the field. Is like it's not just hey, let's just pay these athletes for using their image and likeness. Once you change from amateurism to professionalism, there's also workers' comp. There's also something that we know in in it, at the professional level playing sports. Both of us, is there's something called profe- um, um, something called percentage loss. Mm-hmm where you get an injury, my foot is an example, many of our listeners know I've broken my foot twice. After it's healed, you go back to the doctor's office, they tell you how much you've lost percentage-wise because it's no longer operating at 100%. And then on a state-by-state law per workers' comp, you get compensated on a percentage basis and that gets paid out and part of that is part of the insurance plan. So the NCAA would have to restructure a lot more from a compensation package and that would eat into their profit margins. Agreed. Yeah, so there's, there's a, I, I guess, a lot more to go through than, than what we realize. And think about this. Think about with the immersion of, I don't have cable. Do you have cable? Nope. Okay, great. So do you, what do you have? Do you have Hulu? Do you have Apple TV? Uh, yeah, I'm just a la carte. I, okay. I purchase, uh, I'm an Amazon Prime member. I purchase HBO Boom. Go, Netflix. Yeah. So I watch all my stuff on Apple TV. I I have Hulu as well. I push uh, through my Netflix. Chromecast. Yeah, Chromecast too, you right? <laughs> like you play, you gotta play, you gotta play the system. Yeah. Um, but the thing about with all the tech money now being thrown into content, think about when the rights come up for the NCAA tournament again. Do you think CBS is going to get it for ten and a half billion dollars? Or if you're an Amazon or if you're an Apple, why wouldn't they play in the game? I would like to own the NCAA tournament. Yep. I would play. I would pay. $35 billion, $36 billion to have the tournament. I mean, we're only going to see that price rise up. So the money is only going to become more, Yeah. in particular with live in-game content. Mm-hmm. And I want to squash, and we'll move from this, I want to squash the, the one notion that's out there that, that scholarship is has has been good enough in in way Stop. of compensation. Forget about it, right? Total and bullshit. And I know I I understand the, I understand the qualm that students have. Like I have a lot of friends that are still in debt to this day. I'm 36 mm-hmm. years old. They're still fighting on, on payment schedules to get their money back to the university or to the government. I, I I understand that, but at the same time, as a student athlete, first off, it's if I've heard stories, Paul, of players tell me, "Hey, I wanted to major in this." But my coach said I couldn't because it was going to take away from the kind of attention that I need to have on the court or on the field. It, it, it wouldn't have worked properly yep. with my on-the-field schedule, mm-hmm. right? So we talk about the value of an education. Are the players really getting an education, first off? You have North Carolina paper courses. And there's some onus of that on the players as well. But if I'm a player and I'm forced to go to school, I'm trying to just get through it because I want to make I want to make money. Yep. Isn't that why you go to school? Yep. You go to college to get a – College education, and hopefully that leads into you having a job that pays you. Same reason for an athlete, right? So those are the little things that I think sometimes get lost. And you say, hey, you get a free education. Doesn't matter. Right. Doesn't matter about that, especially when my, my tuition pales in comparison to the amount of money that we're bringing into these particular programs. So you're talking about not only your perspective now as, as an analyst and an innovator and thought leader in, in sports, but also through firsthand experience growing up and playing multiple sports and also being a, a top recruit and going to Duke. Can we rewind and, and uh, hear about your origin story and, and how you found basketball, the impact that your mother and father had in, in your own personal development? Yeah, um, I was lucky enough. My dad worked for Amex for 20 years, and then he worked for uh, AT&T for another 13. 
I watched my mother start off as a guidance counselor at Plainfield High School, go back to school while she was doing her job and taking care of me while my father worked in New York. I'm from New Jersey. So my dad wouldn't get home until 7 o'clock, 8 o'clock at night every single day. My mom was that person, that caretaker. She received multiple degrees Mm. as she went back to school. So I've always had that work ethic in my DNA. Mm. Um, And also my, my parents talked to me about different things that were going on in my life and in their lives. So it put things kind of through a filter, through a prism that I don't think some of my other friends who play basketball had a chance to have or experience. Basketball for me, I played every sport, man. Like actually my first love is football. And when I say football, I say the international world yeah. football, not American <laughs> football. I, I loved football. I played that growing up. Plainfield was predominantly black and Latin. Um, so I, I used to play with all the Latin kids all the time. And, and that was the way I got started with footwork and just running up and down. And I loved it. And my dad played tennis growing up. So tennis was actually the first sport that I played before I found soccer. So hand-eye coordination. I just And sports was always used through the platform of my dad by saying to my mom, you can't go out and play until you do this amount of reading or you do this amount of homework. Mm-hmm. So they incentivized me with sports. Right. Um, and then eventually I remember being in fourth grade and I, you know, Plainfield High School where my mom was a guidance counselor. You had to go through um, a metal detector before you went into school. There were a lot of gangs. There were a lot of stabbings, a lot of shootings. It mm-hmm. was that kind of environment in Plainfield in, in the early 90s. And... I went to school at a school down the street in the next town over South Plainfield that was predominantly Caucasian, right? So there was that challenge for me growing up in a black Latin town and then all of a sudden going to a Caucasian school, whereas if I spoke that way that I would speak in my own neighborhood, I would be called ghetto. Um, I would be called you're so hood or you have swag or whatever it was. And then when I would come back to my own town, oh, you're an Uncle Tom, you're white, and you're like, you can't figure it out. But it was amazing for me um, that fourth grade year because I came back home and I yelled to my mom when I burst through the door, there's a shootout, there's a shootout. My mom's first reaction is, get the hell down. Like, come over here. Get. She actually thinks there's really a shootout. Yeah. I'm like, no, there's a basketball shootout. Uh-huh. And that was the first time I can remember Jesus. where I started to really love basketball because I didn't have to think about any more. Like, all right. Am I black? Am I white? Uh, is acting this way black? Is acting that way white? Basketball, the sport, was something that, no, okay, this is Jay. Yeah. Th- this is who I am, hmm. which leads into a bigger discussion down the line, I'm sure you and I have, because there's, there's this identity crisis you have with this sport. Right. That's almost like it's been your safe haven your entire life. Yeah. That, I think that an ultimate challenge for for pro athletes, and frankly – entrepreneurs or whatever industry you're involved in is like how you find balance between who you are and what you do. Right. And, and there's a a notion that is part of our collective uh, genograms that suggests that it back in the day, don't do business with family. And thus Mm -hmm. that, that, that tells you that you should keep the two separate and balance both, but in a world where we're at today, I know f- for you and for me specifically is, is I have some of the most meaningful relationships in my life and my work, uh, and 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 
I work with my business partner very closely, who's my brother. Um, and it comes down to communication. Um, just as, again, back in, in our, our cultural or, or society tells us don't talk about politics or religion. Well, why? Because it's, it's uncomfortable. What's wrong with being uncomfortable? That's where we grow. It's like be, more times than not, we don't speak about those topics or relationships because we're not confident in the way that we've educated ourselves around that in our position and we're insecure and we're not secure enough to be empathic or hear someone else's point of view without it feeling like it's conflicting or we're getting into an argument. Mm. So I definitely hear what you're uh, saying there and taking it back to the basketball court. You've told me that a challenge in terms of nomenclature was that, that contrast between um, you know, your, your group of white friends, your group of black friends, where you're on the, the court with your black friends, there was the, the verbiage used and, and the N-word gets flung around. And, and, uh, and you told me specifically there was a time where you used it and your dad said, not in our house. Yeah, I, I, I used it just because it became part of my vernacular, you know, being on the court. It was more of a reactionary thing. And once again, this goes back into what I sometimes say for people in general. I don't think people thoroughly think through what they say. I think people speak very loosely sometimes. Um, and, I mean, we've all been subject to that every once in a while. But that particular time, just kind of shooting the shit with my dad, I was just like, oh, I'm worth this. Right. I was like... I'm sorry, what? And I'm like, and all of a sudden, you, know, you ever feel that that fear internally in, in the, the, the pit of your stomach when your dad or your parent catches you on something? And you just you get hot. Yeah, you get hot, you start sweating, your armpits start sweating through your through your shirt, your hand, your palms are sweating. And I was like, it, it just, it, it calculated in my brain, no, you just said that. You just said that to your dad. And... This is why I try to tell people you need to talk to your kids about difficult scenarios that have occurred in your life because if you don't, you're doing them a disjustice because then they don't have any reference points. I remember my dad talking to me about being called that word in the 50s and the 60s -hmm. and how it made him feel, how it was used to debase him or belittle his intellect. And all of a sudden, no, I want to... Um, remove you from this equation just because of the color of your skin, not because of the brain power you bring to the equation. And my dad was like, we don't use that word in our house. That word is demeaning, it's belittling, and for somebody like you, you have to hold yourself above all that, in particular with the sport that you want to play. Mm-hmm. Because people are automatically going to look at you and think of you as a dumb jock and think that you won't have an opinion Add that to the equation of you being a young black man, uh, you're going to have your hands full. So I don't want you to do anything to help them defeat you. I want you to stand strong for yourself. Yep. It was a really strong life lesson that I think I learned at a young age. Um, And it's one that I try to help other young people of color or people just in general with the way they speak. To what degree do you want to represent yourself? Mm Mm-hmm. And that so began your conquest in in playing multiple sports and developing your athleticism, but also developing your horsepower as an intellectual. Um, before we get into Duke, which I've I've learned you look at as more of your family uh, in those relationships that you built and how meaningful that was even post-motorcycle accident and the rehabilitation that you went to back at the university. When you look at 
one of the almost given the depth of what we've been talking about topically, the the lighter um, um, subjects in in sports is should a player or should a kid play multiple sports or sports specialize. <laughs> We're hearing a lot of sports specialization and seeing that because for some reason now we both grew up in the 90s. But in today's day, uh, you know, parents and, and kids all have the expectation that they're going to play pro sports. My, my dad never once thought I was even going to get a college scholarship to you play know, My dad was like, oh, we could just be active. Yeah, just get, just just get, get Jay and house. Paul to like give them like an incentive to do their homework. <laughs> <laughs> so so I, I've, the position that I've always taken, I think I've said this on the show before, is, is playing multiple sports, you build more skill sets athletically by being in different situations on different fields and different courts, which help you in the long run, help build a, a, a taller and wider potential. For you as an athlete, sports specialization, especially in a handball sport or hand-eye sport, you played tennis, I play lacrosse, um, can help you excel faster, potentially get you recruited earlier, but your ceiling's lower. What, what type of advice or how have you thought about sports specialization versus multi-sport athletes? Because I imagine there's a lot of specialization in AAU. There is. I, I tell people, frankly, when you know I first started kind of getting out of the whole um, – agency business and started doing TV. I had a lot of people that came to me like, Oh, I'll pay you, you know, a thousand bucks a session to train my kid. Yeah. And I want him to train, you know, two times a week. And I want you to train him like he's an NBA player. I'm like, dude, your kid is seven. (laughs) He needs to run. He needs to learn how to run. Just get him out of the house. Let him climb a tree and break his leg. Like, let him be a boy. Let him be yeah, a girl. Let him like that. But yeah, let him. Exactly. Now, like, I'm, I'm over here getting iced up for a couple of years if I break a bone. But um, I, I couldn't. I couldn't find myself to go in that direction. And I, I would tell people, I think the reason why I am who I am is because I played a multitude of sports. Mm-hmm. And you obviously talked about the, the physical um, experiences or the physical advantages that playing a multitude of sports has. I think there's a plethora of mental advantages that you can mm-hmm. have as well from playing that. Prime example, these are little things. Um Playing football. I always say football. I think soccer. Okay, yeah, Playing soccer. We can, sorry. We can talk that. I love football. Playing soccer. <laughs> uh, predominantly, most of my teammates were Latin. Okay? Mm-hmm. I did not know how to speak Spanish. You know what that taught me how to do, though? Be comfortable not knowing how to speak Spanish, but still finding ways to communicate. Hmm. Finding ways to communicate with different teammates. Uh, understanding positioning within soccer. Doing things uh, agility-wise and understanding, well, okay, if I'm doing this ladder drill, wow, this is this is somewhat similar to a basketball move, that's an in and out, yeah. or that's an in and out crossover, or that's backpedaling. How do I backpedal faster? I played volleyball throughout high school. Yep. I never knew how to jump the right way. Like volleyball taught me actually how to approach the net, how to jump the right way, but huh. also it taught me how to kind of verbally communicate with my teammates, not through speech, right? Through different hand signs and how yeah. I had to be more attentive being on the volleyball court because there are a lot of hand signals going on. So all these different things, I think, ultimately led me to the point where I think my sense of awareness was extremely heightened. Hmm. Maybe to the point of where I was overly sensitive because yeah. I, I, you start to pick up on what's the mannerism of this yep. person? Is he looking me in the eye when he speaks to me? Does he put his hat down? Does he feel confident in himself? Do I, Especially as a point guard too, do I need to give you the ball? 
in this position, if I think that you th- know you're uncomfortable in this position, yep. because I see that, yeah. I feel that, I watch like you're not going into this the way you would normally go into something. And I think psychologically, it just, I would have never had those tools if I didn't play all the sports I played. Yeah, reading body language is really interesting. It's huge. Yeah, I, I, I bet you could also add to the to the psychology of playing multiple sports in that basketball probably helped your 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 time on ball and soccer which expectedly is probably much less than hoops because you get a lot of repetitions so you're playing a different sport entirely but you're you're learning offensive skill sets that you can take to the soccer field where you may touch the ball a, a fraction of the time but you but you have this repetition from hoops that now you're seeing the field differently and you're probably more impactful on the ball so there are things that I think you get from playing different sports, as you mentioned, mentally and also physically. Um, connecting back to to the NCAA and then your recruiting process, let's talk about Duke. But why did you commit there? I told this story in my book. It was uh, I had a lot of coaches that offered me playing time. I had a lot of people that offered me a lot of different things. And I think the – the thing that resonated with my father the most, I don't think I know. Um, and it resonated with me because my father made me aware of it, which I did not recognize at the time of being 16 years old, was that when I sat down in the smaller office of Coach K, because now they have a pretty massive facility, things have really <laughs> changed since 1998. Um, but I remember sitting down in a smaller chair, Paul, and, and him sitting down, in this grand chair behind his desk. And first off, he called me Mr. Williams. He called my dad and my mother, David and Althea. Now, I know a kid probably in that moment wouldn't think twice about that. It was the first time in my life that somebody ever referenced me as a mister. Hmm. And as a 16-year-old kid, I was like, whoa, what does that mean? Right. He's talking to me like I'm a I'm an adult. Yeah. Okay. Wow, this is an adult decision. Yeah. Because you, so many people and this is just doesn't pertain to kids, it pertains to adults. We get so lost in the flurry of life, we don't take time to think through scenarios as they occur. You're just you're too busy thinking about what's going to happen next, what is he going to say, <laughs> where is he going to take me on the tour? I can't wait to play here, maybe I can play with this player or I can't wait to get to the NBA. How is he going to get me to the NBA? Right. Your your brain is rushing and at that particular moment my brain kind of slowed down. Hmm. And I thought about that. I was like, "Okay." And then he says something to me that my dad reiterated when we were out of the meeting. He said, "I'm not going to promise you you're going to start." I'm not going to promise you you're going to play 25 minutes a game. I'm not going to promise you you're going to make it to the NBA. But I do promise you by the time you leave here, you will be prepared for life. Now, as a kid hearing that, you're like, blah, 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 bro. Like, I, I want to play. Mm-hmm. Like, I want to average 20 points a night. I almost took that in the athlete mind, right? You know how competitive we are. Yeah. Or if you're one of these people, I can listen to I had this habit before of listening to what people said, and I found that one thing that motivated me, and it was usually something I didn't like because I I didn't like being told, oh, you're great. Mm-hmm. Like, I wanted to hear something, oh, you can't do this better because it made me work harder. Hmm. That's how I, it drove me. Yeah. So by him saying that, I was focused more on a negative about, no, I'm going to play 35 minutes a night. And my dad was like, when we came out of that meeting, we're sitting there. My dad's like, son, like, 
he wants to challenge you as a human being. Yeah. I don't think there's any other place you should be because this is not about basketball. Hopefully you can make a lot of money playing this sport, but I want you to be a good person. Mm. And that was like the beginning of me being somewhat consciously aware. It wasn't, my switch wasn't all the way on. It was about 5% on, and that was 5% more light than I've ever had in my life. And and you think the switch has to be, uh, let me, let me re-ask that. Most people, if not all have a switch Sometimes it never gets turned on. In your circumstance, I believe knowing how um, you know how self-aware you are and humble, um, that being spoken to with respect and then also be given being given real talk, were like not only two things that you deserve, but you you were like inclined to like more than what we often hear is like how much playing time, this and that, you know. What's what's the academics and social life? It's not like hey, sit down with me in this present moment and tell me what life is like now and what i can expect realistically and that's what he gave you how many people in your life do you have that do that very few that's exactly my because a lot of times we think it's going to be hurtful you know because and i think over time we're uh when me especially at least speaking for myself is for those that challenged me perhaps when i was younger i was really reactive to and it, Mm -hmm. it it gave them this this uh this mental training not to not to challenge the alpha male or the captain, you know, or the leader on the team, because he's because he'll he'll fight back at you, and uh, and that's not who I wanted to be. It's just the way that we are when we're young sometimes, and and having not experienced much failure or pain, um, but but my quest now is to surround myself with with more people like that. Yeah, I feel like we live in a very inflamed, reactionary society. Mm-hmm. Some, I mean, you kind of alluded to that before when you said, you know, if somebody says something that you don't like, it's automatically retorted with anger or mm-hmm. a disposition of frustration. I can't believe you. And there's, there's, there's nothing that's empathetic anymore about listening to somebody be open. And you don't have to agree with their assessment. Yep. But I think by just being open enough to hear them and then actually register or calculating your brain do I have these qualities that this person is talking about? Do I actually do this? And then being honest with yourself and then maybe saying, maybe you're somewhat right. Yep. And I think that's, that was the first time that I think I started to hear people communicate to me in that facet. Now feels like a time to take a quick break from my conversation with Jay Williams and bring you in on some research and our show's final sponsor. While I was doing research on Jay, I ran into a quote he had from his father that said, dress for the job you want, not the job you have. Indochino is making it easy to get a perfectly tailored suit at an incredible price, where you can choose from hundreds of top quality fabrics, personalize your suit just the way you want it. Indochino has suited up, notice that, hundreds of thousands of men and are now the largest made-to-measure menswear brand in the world. So here's how it works. Visit a showroom or shop online at Indochino.com. You'll pick your fabric, choose your customizations, submit your measurements, and place your order where it will arrive in just a few short weeks. Now, this week, our Suiting Up Pod listeners can get any premium Indochino suit for just $379. That's a great price, guys. Like, really good. $379 premium Indochino suit. So here's what you can do. Visit Indochino.com and enter Rabel at checkout. Voila. Plus, shipping is free. So that's Indochino.com, promo code Rabel. Let's go back to the show. 
let me ask you about Duke. Why is there, why is there this like stigma so associated with Duke basketball where it's like you can't wait to hate one of the players, whether it be like JJ Redick or I remember watching you. I mean, now it, this could be a bias because my dad went to North Carolina, okay. so we were <laughs> we were Tar Heels fans. <laughs> But you you talk about how it was so hard to play in in uh, at the University of Maryland, but you have these guys, and maybe did it start away all the way back with Christian Leitner? But why do people uh, embrace like anti Duke? Is it because the higher education, so you get the best team in the country and a wonderful elite institution? Like, why do you think that is? Have you thought about it? It's like we have a target on our backs. I think a lot of it is ignorance. Ignorance, yeah. Uh, it's ignorance with the Yankees. It's ignorance with the mm-hmm. Red Sox. It's uh, fans. Be, I mean, fan is short for fanatic. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I grew up a North Carolina fan, um, <laughs> which is really funny. My best friend, Dre, he's a North Carolina fan. I grew up lowering my backboard and trying to do the same dunks Vince Carter did. I mm-hmm. used to dribble in the backyard like, I'm Kenny Smith. Uh, I got turned down to go to school in North Carolina. I, I do think that there is basketball – is a predominantly African-American sport. And I do think that Duke being a private school in the South and has had some Caucasian players that have been badasses, um, people automatically associate the two together. Where it's like the pretty boys, the darlings of college basketball, Mm -hmm. the university did a program that could do no wrong. They're always clean cut. And everybody else is dirty. Um, and and you spoke well. And you spoke well. You're articulate, you know. But you were complimentary of the other team. Yeah, that's. But <laughs> a lot of times you have to understand that the coach that you have there is a army foundational coach, right? So not every kid, like Corey Maggette or Elton Brand, wasn't from like a prestigious school, right? Like, it, but. He teaches you how to play the game. Mm. And when I mean the game, I'm not talking about anything on the court. He teaches you, like, this is the corporate game. Mm. This is the business game. And this is how you need to hold yourself, in particular, if you're going to be here. The basketball stuff will take care of itself. He wants you to be a bad boy on the court. He wants you to own your personality. And if you have a tattoo, it doesn't matter. Um, but he, he schools you to how the business of the game works. And I think mm. when people see that, people get automatically pissed off by that because they want to find something wrong with you. Mm-hmm. Now, Duke isn't Camelot. I mean, there's, there's with any family, there are issues within family, okay? You saw that over the last couple of years with Grayson Allen. And, you know, I dealt with some things because I, I made some comments about Grayson Allen and you automatically feel like you can't win. Either you say something that people are like, well, finally you're speaking out against your old program and then you don't. And, well, I can't believe you're not going to speak out against your right. old program. Uh. So it's a lose-lose scenario regardless of the way you look at it. But my thing is, ultimately, at the end of the day, um, he cares about you as an individual, and he wants you to be the best version of yourself. And yeah. that's not only him; that's other coaches in college basketball too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and in your career, you know, three years at Duke, graduated as a junior, yep. and and had your jersey retired on senior day as a junior, um, and, and and so had a, a fantastic freshman year. I, I remember actually we were talking about athletic movements. I used to practice your crossover and Stop. I took it. Yeah. I took it in, in onto the lacrosse field with my stick. You do like a twirl in and out, in and out. Anyway, uh, going down memory lane. That would so, be nasty to actually, I want to see you. Translate so I'll show, that. Yeah. I'll, I'll show you that. So I didn't do it as fast or as quick as you, but great freshman year, sophomore year, player of the year, 
win a national championship. All the games that you guys won were by a minimum of ten points. How do you how do you lead a team from a cat from like a, a leadership standpoint? Uh, the captains on the team through performance and grit on court. What was the secret sauce, if there is any, from that season? Uh, my sophomore year was not the leader, and I think the first part about being a leader is recognizing that. Sometimes you're not the leader. Mm. We had a guy named Shane Battier in our team mm-hmm. who verbally talked us through every single scenario. He was definitely our bona fide leader. I think I was one of the leaders on the team, but I think where I really had the most impact was with the moxie in which I played. Mm. Because I was always kind of crazy competitive. And Chris Duan, who was my teammate, we joke about this. I can have 11 turnovers or I can have 15 assists. I can have 35 points or I can go 0 for 13 from the field. Uh, I got lost in the competitiveness and the passion of the game. And I think that's where I brought the advantage because there was this fire that just burned to me. And Coach helped me find that. He helped me find a way to play angry. That's when I played the best version of myself. Mm -hmm. But as far as the leadership, I mean – from the the macro position, that was Coach K and Shane Battier because Shane Battier was an extension of Coach K on the floor. And you can imagine, like, you know, when you're in a game, sometimes you just get lost in the muck, right? Yep. You get you, Somebody starts talking to you. You get lost in that. You're competitive. You know, you're competing. You're picking up. And the game moves so fast yep. that you can't thoroughly think through each and every possession. And when you have somebody that is constantly chirping in your ear about what the scouting report is or about what the game plan is, that's a leader. I mean, yeah. even when you're tired. I mean, I, I remember one time we were playing against North Carolina, and I'm, presser, I'm presser, uh, pressing the ball. And, you know, Coach K had this style where it was very tiring. He always wanted to press. And my job as a point guard was I had to try to turn you turned you two or three times before you got to half court each and every defensive possession. Yep. So imagine that. like You come down, you score three. Like I'm literally waiting for you on the baseline. If your back is turned to me, like, all right, let's go. Yep. Like I can't think about let me still like, – it's about God. defensively turning you, like getting you to spin or cross over, whatever it is, three times before you get to half court because mm-hmm. we can come bring traps, whatever it is. And one of the things that started to blow me away about Shane is that and it's funny when you're a kid, you get annoyed by this. But now as an adult, I'm like, wow, it's so brilliant. He nonstop talking. Send him left. Send him right. Bring him to me. Remember, he can't do it with his left. Remember, he can only finish with his right hand around the rim. Mm-hmm. That constant yapping not only helped me, but think about what that did to the offensive player. When you have somebody on defense reciting the scouting oh. report, he only finishes at the rim you know, 30% with his right hand. He would say stuff like that. Yeah. And all of a sudden – this guy, I'm a competitor. If somebody said it to me, I'm like, I can finish with my right hand at the rim more than 30%. Nope. Like, all of a sudden, <laughs> now I'm in a battle with myself on yeah. top of the battle I'm in with you individually and a team battle. Huh. Like, that's what he really brought to the table, and, which was yeah. incredible. And what most athletes know is that, okay, yeah, communication makes sense. We should all communicate. But communication's really fucking hard because it's so tiring. It's tiring to, to full court press and turn that guard three times and then to do so while talking, thinking, acting, and then communicating what you're thinking succinctly is really, really difficult. In, in, in our sport, we rely on the goalie to do a lot of the defensive communication because he's not moving around and chasing the ball as much. When you have a dynamic defender who's communicating like Battier was – it is the secret sauce to many of the best defenses 
agree. on the planet. Do is psychological warfare to a way different degree. How are you guys in such good shape? You just run nonstop? Well, no. Well, we used to do drills where, uh, you know, we would do a, a ton of training exercises and it was mandatory that we always had to say each other's names throughout the exercises. So, uh. you know, little things that it, it's all about practicing habits. So we would go through practice one time where every time you had to pass the ball, you had to say the name of the player you were passing the ball to. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we would have to talk to each other while we were doing defensive drills. If there were slide and, and runs or whatever they were, our, our, our practices were constant yapping. Mm-hmm. And if you weren't talking, then – Kay would pull you over to the side or however he had to reprimand you, and he would tell you that you're being selfish. And it was it was weird because you would never think about you being quiet on the court that you're being selfish. But when you actually ultimately think about it, you really are because you're inter- you eternalizing everything that's going on. Well, mm. whoa, it's me. It's not going right for me. Or, you know, I haven't gotten a touch in the last three possessions. Why are you only thinking about you? That's right. You know, why are you not thinking about the team? Ultimately, the more the team is successful, the more you will be successful individually. Yeah. And it's him getting you to think outside the box in scenarios like that that really ultimately help you blossom as a team. Part of why I love doing this podcast is I always, is I always learn new things, that being one of them. And it makes sense because I know when I'm in a funk personally or another athlete is, if you force yourself to communicate to your teammates, it almost immediately through your neurological system gets you out of that funk because you're now committing yourself to the success of your teammate and the greater success of the team when you force yourself to communicate. So it's a proactive way almost of of getting out of a funk too, which all athletes get into at some point. And thinking about this too, it also forms a bond. Yeah. Because then all of a sudden I I know that Regardless of whether my teammate's having a, a good or a bad game, he's not going to change. He's going to be that one constant for me. And it, that I don't – I think playing at Duke was the gift and the curse because that bond, you know, there's a hashtag that they always say, brotherhood. We didn't start saying that even though I think it was just it, – it was meant. We didn't say it. But I feel that because – I haven't gotten a chance hmm. to be a part of that since I was done playing in college. I didn't feel that on the NBA level. You think Kyrie and LeBron James feel that? It's um, they don't. It's even on the best teams, unless you have a leader like a Greg Popovich for San Antonio. Mm-hmm. Like they feel like that. Yep. Um, Golden State, to a certain degree. Feels like that a little bit. Uh, I don't know. KD brings a, a different dynamic to the team, and where I think he's a little bit. They don't know him yet. They're still trying to figure him out. But before he got there, it felt like that. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's only for a special few. But once you get once you have a chance to drink that Kool Aid, yeah, it's hard to go back to reality, man. Yeah, where like this mentality where I have to look out for me first, because you're so used to looking out for your brothers. Describe mentioned college park describe that infamous comeback i've watched it a couple dozen times now was it 10 points inside of 55 seconds yeah was that in college park or at duke in college park that was unbelievable was that a moment and and having you know being sitting down with you in in your living room basement where you can actually ask and get the the exact answer we sports are defined by those comeback unbelievable, unthinkable moments. Um, and we often wonder, like, how superhuman is this athlete that just reeled off these plays? Did he or she always 
No. Were they confident walking on the floor like, this is going to happen? Or is it one of those flow state moments where it was like happening as you were going, um, you, you, maybe your spirits were down. Then as it started rolling, whew, here we go. I, it was the latter. I, I was a very insecure player. <laughs> that was fucking nuts. <laughs> yeah. It, it was unbelievable. It was it's like steel three, steel three, it, steel three. It, it was surreal for that moment to even happen because so many things had to go right in order for that to actually occur. I, I was one of these guys that I, I said it before I had to play angry and I was also a selfish player because when things were going wrong, it was something I had to constantly work on when things went wrong, when I wasn't having a good game or when I was turning the ball over, my teammates didn't know what, what Jason they were going to get. And I would, internalize different hmm. things. I would go into my own head. I would start questioning myself. I would be passive. I wouldn't be aggressive. And that was a constant kind of friction point for Coach K and I. Um, it wasn't until my junior year until I really understood that. But my sophomore year is when I kind of blew up scoring-wise. I just It was one of those years where it just I could, I could throw the ball up and it was, the, the basket was the ocean. It was, it was going in. I couldn't help it. I don't know where it came from. Yeah. That particular moment at that game, it was a shitty game for me. They had nine or ten turnovers. We were horrible. Um, and I, I just remember being in the huddle and Shane being like, this game's not fucking over yet. Mm. This game's not fucking over yet. And, and in my mind, I'm like, this game is fucking over. Bro. Right. We, like, I think we were, like, dude, I've said like, that a bunch and the game ended. <laughs> Once again, 19-year-old me, like, Shane, shut the hell up. All you do is talk all the time, bro. <laughs> like, I know you're a religion major. Like, I know you err on the side of optimism, but we're going to fucking lose a game. All right? Like, let's just get ready for the next game, yeah. bro. Yeah. Um, and I, I just, we came out of it. I had the ball. And I was pissed off. I was pissed off that I played. And this is where Coach K is really, really smart. He always talked to you about the importance of the next play, the play that didn't happen yet. That if you find a way to lose yourself in that present moment, the rest will take care of itself. If you don't harbor on what just occurred and allow yourself to move on mentally, that moment will take care of itself. And I remember thinking to myself, you know what? I just, I just want to score the ball. Screw this. I just scored the ball. I came down, uh, Steve Blake had fouled out, I scored the ball, and we were in a full court press, and next thing you know, they brought the ball to the corner. Yep. And it's funny how 36 years old, this happened when I was 19, I can remember it like it was yesterday. Uh-huh. And he brought the ball to the corner, we trapped, he put the ball in front of me like he wanted me to swipe at it, and I swiped at it. Now look, did I foul him? Probably. I don't know. The ref yeah. couldn't see it. That's on the ref, not me. It's not my job to raise my hand. I think I fouled him, sir. The ball popped off his knee. The ball came into my hands. Boom. I looked at the line, stepped behind it. I shot it. Boom. All of a sudden, we're down five. And you're like, holy shit. Yeah. Like, whoa, we were just down 10. Right. Lay up in the three, we're down five. Yeah. We, Coach K subs me out. He puts Andre Buckner in the game because I couldn't foul. I didn't have a foul to give. Andre Buckner fouls a guy named Drew Nicholas, who I've known for a long time. We actually played for the same AAU team growing up. No way. And we go to the free throw line. I get subbed back in the game. And that's when Chris Duhon and I, we just started yapping at him. It's going short. It's going long. Oh, no way. He don't want to shoot it. He's a punk. He's a punk ass. Yeah. He ain't trying to win this game. He don't know. First one went short. 
Yeah. They're like, there it goes. Oh, no. His ass is tight. He's going to miss the second one. Like, you imagine, like, the same way you were talking oh, across. Yeah. Like, this is like you're, you're engaged in, mm. in warfare. And now we believe we have a chance to win. Because you can always tell when somebody isn't confident hmm. when they step to the free throw line because they start looking to other people to almost kind of like help me in this moment. Like, hey, yeah, we okay. Like Drew was talking to everybody. And they're like, oh, he, he don't look confident up there. Right. And sure enough, the second one was short too. And we got the rebound. I got the ball. Came down. Shane hit somebody on the screen. Boom, I hit a three. Down, all of a sudden, we're down two. And you just felt the wind just be removed from their cell. Oh yeah, and it was like from that moment on, I was like, "Oh, we about to, we're we're going to win this game," and the rest took care of itself. So Coach K is always, you know, I always remember him. As soon as those moments happen, boom, timeout, timeout, sub in, boom, timeout, and he still does it even even when Duke doesn't pull off the upset. But I bet that consistency signals to the players that like, hey, not only do we have a leader in Shane Battier say we're going to come back, but like he's burning timeouts after the first layup that put us within eight with fifty seconds left. All right, you know, or, or whatever it is. So, so that uh, I, I remember watching. That was unbelievable. Thanks for taking us through that. And it's such a crazy addictive mentality because now, man, it doesn't matter what the hell happens in my life. I believe I can win. Yeah, I, I can be down. I could lose my job. I've already gone through something extremely traumatic in my life. But if I didn't have my second father, like a guy that kind of took what my father taught me and built upon it. Hmm. And led me in that capacity, there's no way I'm able to fight through what I went through in my life. And there's no way that every single day I approach it like I don't have shit. Like, I feel like, why do you, why do you, why are you grinding? Why are you working so hard? I'm like, cause what? I, I, this is great that I've achieved this level, but like, this isn't it. Like, I want to continue to better myself. Yeah. And that's never going to stop. It's, I was, I was talking about it with my brother this morning who's in town. Uh, from San Francisco, um, just bouncing some ideas off of him. Grew up a Carolina basketball fan as well on on on, uh, on where you ended up going and drafted after your junior year, second behind Yao Ming to the Bulls. Yeah. You've said it's a How different... How many times has a seven six Chinese man come up on you? <laughs> it still kind of works <laughs> me the wrong way, bro. <laughs> so you... Uh... So you go to a, a team culture and a vibe that's that's different than what you had at Duke, and that's culture shocking. And a lot of athletes have been there. And and actually, not to digress to this topic, but very little attention goes to the luck of the draw of any sport athlete getting drafted to a team that there's either a fit or not, and a fit could be skill wise. You know, there are some backup quarterbacks over the past two decades that sit behind some of the best players to ever play the game in the NFL that just never get a sniff because the timing wasn't right. Mm. Uh, there are tremendous players that have never won championships in pro sports because the culture of their team or their teammates just weren't weren't as good. And that's why team sports are so dynamic. But Like Tom Brady for your first one you're talking about? <laughs> yeah. You get a chance, say so you become the greatest QB of mm. all time to go. Who, kn- who knows if Drew Bledsoe never gets hurt? That's what I'm saying. He never gets hurt. Is Tom Brady who Tom Brady is now? It's unbelievable. You know, we're yet to to really see how Ezekiel Elliott develops, but 
you know, and I'm not a football analyst, so I'm really out of my skin talking about this. But those of my the friends of I of, that I have that that do watch football are like, he's got one of the best lines in the NFL. It makes a hell of a difference. Bro. It makes a hell of a difference, right? And, and not to degrade let any him, of let his him talent. Let him be a giant. But you can, their O line sucks. Because you can have a tremendous skill set as a running back and have a shitty line. So it, it just goes to say that you go to Chicago, um, you know, rookie of the month. Right out of the gates, you're you're vibing on the floor. Um, may not be vibing as well in the locker room with your team. Um, you, you remind me of of uh, of a number of let's just call it across indus- industries. Really great people that are sometimes really hard on themselves. You reference like just the NBA culture at the time and succumbing to the peer pressures of the of the the private jets and Vegas and the women and the drugs and stuff like that. Uh, and then you then go to your motorcycle accident where, you know, my thought originally hearing about it was like, well, he must have been drunk or must have like done some drugs or done something. You're meeting with your agent. Dead sober. Dead sober. It was just an honest mistake. Uh, and, and so I, 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 I do often read and listen to you speak and I'm like, this guy is really hard on himself. But the reality is, and, and going back to my point and allowing you to talk because I'm talking too much is, is – uh, you know, one of the best basketball players of our lifetime, uh, and I, I say that from as another pro athlete who, as you know, you can judge the combination of character and skill and drive better than most analysts that, that, that know statistics far better than me or uh, claim to know the, the specific genre of sport better. But, it, you know... It, Presumably, without this motorcycle accident, like would still be the best, if not one of the best NBA players. Um, and then with the head on your shoulders that you have, and the thought leadership, can be really impactful. Now, the latter, you're, you've done successfully and are still doing. It's part of your core mission. But what you went through, I got to say that I, I can't imagine going any other route for me personally, which was just this catastrophic uh, personal and probably psychological experience of like, what if, what if we talked about our brain rushing and our mind rushing in different directions when shit happens. But you got in this motorcycle accident that effectively ended your, your playing career. It did actually. uh, It. Jay Williams died that day. And what I mean by that is people still call me Jay. The people who don't know me call me Jay. The people who actually really, really know me personally call me Jason. When, you know, I'm I'm dying to do a TED Talk. And, you know, when you do a TED Talk, you only get 13 minutes, right? I love Kanye, my my best friend, um, a guy I've known for a long time. And Scooter Braun reps Kanye. And we've been trying to talk about the right way to do this. And... You know, I, I have this whole image in my mind about, you know, as I first stand on the stage, the the song Flashing Lights comes on. Hmm. And like one of the most surreal moments for me, Paul, turning into this entity that I was about to turn into was being a, a 19, 20 year old kid hearing his name being called by David Stern and recognizing in that moment holy shit 
this is all really fucking happening. Like, I just got drafted second. Like all this hard work, all the people that told me that, you know, when I was a sophomore, you should commit to Fordham, and you know, we don't know if you're quick enough or if you're fast enough, or hey, after your freshman year in college, like you're not the point guard we expected, and you're two-time national player of the year, you won, you won a championship. You graduated school three years. Holy shit. We're fucking here. Like thinking about that as I'm hugging my mom and my dad and having this moment of joy. And then as I'm walking up the stairs and I see David Stern and the flood of flashing lights coming on me. I remember looking at my mom and my dad and scary, scary moment for me to recognize shit. That's that's the CEO and the CMO of my company now. Hmm. Shit, I have a company? I haven't even done anything yet to warrant being a second pick in the league. My girlfriend, she's there. God, I love her, but what am I about to get into? Do I want a girlfriend right now? Like, I have an accountant and a financial advisor and an agent at my table. Who the fuck are these guys? Where did they come from? Like now they're they're at my table on draft night, like they're part of my family now. Like this is this whole thing is changing. Um, this whole family atmosphere and environment I came from is now just it's business now, and that was it was difficult for me to process at that particular moment, and um, then you start adding in the the dynamics of what teammates were to me, meeting your new teammates, recognizing that Jalen Rose didn't fucking like me because I was I was a dookie. Um, to Jamal Crawford, who was talented as hell, who just got drafted top five, you know, a couple years prior. To, he was the guy before that. Where is he in his career and what he wants to achieve? Am I a perceived threat? Hmm. You're damn right I am. When his contract is up and what he's trying to go for, Oh, Jalen and Jamal are Michigan boys. They're they're close tight together. Oh, we just drafted Tyson Chandler and Eddie Curry, you know, two high school kids where we played a triangle. The ball's not even gonna be in my hands. Oh, we're we're gambling fifteen thousand dollars on a plane ride. Oh, I just saw a teammate lose a Mercedes S five hundred off the roll of a dice. Oh, we're we're going to strip clubs until four o'clock in the morning and the game's at two o'clock the next afternoon. Oh, Whoa, what the fuck? Damn. Like this is all like for so for anybody that you know tries to judge a lot of these kids, it's hard to understand how the dynamics of their life have changed and you're just supposed to adjust. You're just supposed to figure it all out. Nobody sat down with me and gave me financial courses. Nobody sat down and told me about how the hell was I supposed to pick an agent? I'm thinking about picking somebody who I feel close to. You know, instead of somebody that I'm making the right business decision off of, you know, how can I decipher between the two? So I, I, I think all of that, and not to try to expedite the storytelling process of what that first year and the only year was for me, but, you know, I would have a hard time putting my hands around that now as a 36-year-old man, mm -hmm. yet alone a 20-year-old kid. It's challenging. It is the most challenging thing in the psychology element of the expectation of the fans to say, well, 
I'd love to be there and receive million plus well, because, dollars because and just go play. Because as a fan, we think you make a certain amount of money. It takes all your woes away. Let me tell you, it, it, Biggie. I mean, more money, more problems. It exponentially enhances the pre-existing issues that were already there. And, and, and it makes them worse. And then the double-edged sword of like, well, if I was worth that much and if I was that talented and my talent relied on my body, then I would just lock myself in my house all day and then just show up to the arena and like eat well and hire a chef and like just live this life where the double-edged sword is like, then these folks never progress personally or never mature. But wait, you're telling them not to go out and, and explore and experience your 20s. Right, and, and so it's just this huge juxtaposition that this gets these in, young athletes sit in. Agreed, and this gets into the bigger issue too. Like you know, it, it's hard for a lot of athletes to recognize what reality is because everything is adjusted for them. Mm-hmm. So for my entire first year, I barely had anybody say no to me. It was all about what I wanted to do, when I wanted to do it, with who I wanted to do it with. Going back to that feedback part exactly, that we and about. I found a way mentally to justify all my own behavior. All right, so oh, I want to cheat on my girl. I'm not married yet. Yeah, oh, shit, it's my first year in the league. It's okay. It's just, is it really okay? Is that a problem? Oh, you know, um, I just lost ten grand on a roll of dice. Well, you know what? It's per diem. Mm. It's okay. You yeah. know, everyone else is doing. Everybody it. else is doing. It. It's okay. Is it really okay? You know, it's um, it's weird how, first off, you don't even think about who you are or what you stand for at that age. And all of a sudden, you get lost in this whirlwind of a life. And those habits that you pick up while you're going through that tornado start to become part of the DNA of who you actually are. And you're not even recognizing it's going on. Yep. And if that happens for a decade... Then you're you're really at uh, a difficult place when you retire or get cut or stop playing from for professional sports. That now all of a sudden you enter the common workplace and you're not put on a pedestal anymore. You're immediately kicked off of it, and you have to figure out what your next working wage is, and likely starting from an analyst position, whatever it is, or assistant coach for a high school team. And this is just not professional sport. I mean, this is life. I've seen this happen to people who worked on Wall Street. I've seen this happen mm-hmm. to people. You know, and I, I think that's what I equate my accident to the most is that everybody has an accident in some form or fashion. You know, hopefully yours is a lot smaller than mine. It's not as significant, but for you, it may be the most significant thing you go through in your life. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if my lawyer friend who his childhood sweetheart left him, you know, once he became partner at the law firm and left him for a hedge fund manager. That was his accident. For a friend that loses a child, that's her accident. Mm-hmm. Your accident may be losing your job. Um, there's no way I am who I am today if I did not get hurt. I don't know what path I would have continued to go down if everybody continued to cater to my every single need. And I had made $200 million and I have received all the fame in the world and the recognition. I don't know if I would have been able to have the maturity to figure myself out or take the time to figure me out because I would have been killing it. Yeah. And you feel that personal fulfillment is far more powerful than career success dubbed primarily by the outsiders. Agreed. Yeah. Wholeheartedly agreed. When you were originally recovering from your injury, was your mindset, I'm coming back 
and I will be playing in the NBA again. And at what point, I know you had short stints in 2006 and 10, at what point, and was there this unique intersection of personal growth where you said like, not only this isn't for me, not in this life, but there's greatness as a product of this. And I'm going to now take that path. I don't know if I would have, if I eloquently put it the way you just did at that turning point. Originally, it was sorrow, anger, and jealousy. Because I was sorry for myself that I did that to myself. I was angry because I jeopardized not only my future, but my family's future. And I think the jealousy was that I knew of a lot of other guys that were quote unquote killing it, that were living their lives in a completely different way that wasn't right, but felt like they were being rewarded for it and was angry at the, at the guy above about it. And it was funny. Like I don't going through that portion of my life was, was really dark because I, I didn't really start thinking about basketball as being an option until about close to a year later. I was bedridden, man. I had a nurse, her name was Judy, who had to wipe my ass every morning for a couple of months. I shattered my pelvis to a point where I couldn't get erect. Like, I didn't know if I would be able to have kids. Um you are so used to being in tune with your body as an athlete that I felt like an alien in a vessel. And to see my leg, it's still even sometimes to this day when I wake up, like my left leg is smaller than my right. I walk with a limp. I have drop foot. It still hurts sometimes when you think about that because you're so used to being able to react and and do things that, Initially, man, that that led me to deep depression um, where I, I didn't know how to deal with it. And it was a woe is me mentality for a long time. You know, and I, I think I had my family around me and people who cared about me where, you know, you start to become bored and you start doing things to kind of not that you mentally think I have to do this to get myself out of the funk. But it's like, what the hell else am I going to do? <laughs> like, I have to go through therapy and I have to make my leg bigger. I weighed around 150 pounds. I played that year at 200 pounds. I was emaciated, emaciated. Um, And there's certain things that you have to do in order to get you back to just a healthy way of life before you can even think about basketball. I mean, basketball didn't really come into the picture until a while later. And it, and it compounded too, right? Of course. Um, your family who was surrounding you and supporting you, your grandmother passed, your dog passed, and your mom needed a kidney transplant. <laughs> and uh, you reference having to take care of your mom as that proxy for change. Um, do you think that that was, as you reflect back on that, was that, was that needed? Um, life is needed in general. Yeah. I don't think I ever really 
until I went through what I went through was able to possess the quality of empathy. I never really took time to think about it. Never really took a second to think, how would I feel if I were in that person's shoes? And my mother going through her kidney transplant in 2008, that's going on 10 years coming up, um, was another step for our connection as a family because not exactly did I know what she was going through, but when I got hurt, man, I had a lot of people in my life that were on the J bus. <laughs> and, um, you know, when you go through something and I, I held it against people for a while, now I don't. Other people go on with their lives. Mm-hmm. <laughs> You're not that important. Right. And um, so when my mother went through what she went through, it's like, oh, shit, like my mom was ride or die with me. Like she's, she stopped what she was doing. I made some decisions during that time, relationship-wise, that forced my dad to leave. And that that put a, a weird spin on their relationship. She sacrificed that. There are there a lot of things that occurred throughout that process that um, really were eye-opening for all of us together about me and about things they found out for themselves, but things we found out about how we operated as a family. And it was difficult. It was, it was beautiful and it was challenging at the same time. So when she went through what she went through, it was like, okay, like, I know where I have to be because I know who, who I'm aligned with in my life. Mm-hmm. You mentioned empathy is, is so powerful and when I first started studying it, because you do truly have to, there's a, there's a, there's a stark difference between empathy and sympathy. And yep. you mentioned empathy being in, being able to put yourself in someone's shoes to the best of your ability. More times than not, we cannot. Um, for example, for me, I have been working hard and it's, and it's authentic and it's part of been, has been part of a later resurgence in my professional career in speaking about human interests and social equalities, gender, race, sexual orientation, all three of those growing up as a white male, I'm a foreigner too. So I can do my best to empathize, but I know that I can, I I fully cannot be in those, those respective people's shoes as it relates. So what I can do is support and do my best to be authentic and real in those cases. But sympathy is basically just saying, hey, I feel sorry for you. And sometimes makes it worse mm. if, if you're the subject matter, right? I don't need, I may not need sympathy right now. <laughs> I, I think I, I found a way to become more empathetic. And I think I start, I listen to more podcasts. I read more. Mm-hmm. I start tapping into people's stories and their experiences. And I think for the people that say it's difficult for me to be empathetic, I'm like, well, how much due diligence do you do to actually try to understand other people other than just when it comes up in a conversation, you randomly make mention of it, mm-hmm. right? So it, it goes back to this whole flag situation, and I you know we tap into it very quickly, but look, I had a different experience as a young black man in this country than you have as a young Caucasian. I recognize that. I also recognize, so that's the first reality for me. Okay, there's two sides to every equation, right? Um, or there's a third in which God sees all from above, but it's like, okay, great, with the flag. 
I can understand how somebody can look at people protesting the national anthem as disgraceful. If if somebody were a mom and they lost, or a parent, and they lost that child in the act of battle or war, you are disowning my son's life. I feel that passion. I understand that anger. Mm-hmm. Um, I also understand the anger of um, a mother who's from an inner city or you know a different ethnicity where their son is the byproduct of police brutality and they've lost their son's life. Like that's not what the ideals of what America stands for, right? So I see both sides of the equation, but I think sometimes we get so lost in the rhetoric and we want to have a quick retort to be so angry mm-hmm. or like, this is how it needs to be that you don't listen to the other side of the story. Mm-hmm. Like, and, and look, our president inflates that. He taps into that a little bit. Fuck. Um, but like for me, like that's where I come to this whole scenario with. Like, no, I, I get it. I understand it, um, but there, are, like, we never have those ideals or those opportunities to express that if we don't come to each conversation with open eyes about what all people go through. And then, all right, now we have a commonality. How do we find a way to to move forward through that? And it's not going to start with dissension. There's no right or wrong in empathy. No, I think that's not. really important. It's gray. Right. It's not black or white, no pun intended. It's gray. Life is gray, people. It's murky. Yeah. It's just it's it's about being curious and being interested and being and being thoughtful and caring. Like I how agree. can I understand your point of view? I agree. Yeah. Um what are so. some what are some uh some books or, or practicing habits uh or podcasts that you like to listen to, consume that helps you intellectually, helps you understand other people? Like what, what's what's a, what are some things that you like? Uh, one of the things my, my girlfriend who uh, has really helped me immensely over the past year and a half, uh, she loves Tim Ferriss. So I find myself <laughs> listening to TF all the time. Yeah. Uh, and his <laughs> he's, random, he's really good. He's really good. <laughs> and his random conversations, uh, a pod that I've recently found that really helps me understand the underbelly of politics is Pod Save America, mm-hmm. uh, which is three guys that worked in the Obama administration and uh, they kind of take you through what protocol should be. Um, mm-hmm. And for me, I don't think any book is a bad book, man. I um, Rich Dad, Poor Dad was was a great example of, you know, certain things as an athlete. Hmm. I moved so fast. I didn't – my dad worked for Amex. My dad spent a lot of time working. So we didn't have a lot of conversations about finances, about the foundational uh, aspect of – why we do certain things and there's a certain mentality for certain people that will forever work nine to five. I'm an entrepreneur. I have different things going on. Uh, one of my business partners is a guy who's my best friend because I also don't believe in that. Like your friends can't work together. And it's been fascinating over the last year plus working with him because he's had a nine to five mentality. And what I mean by that is, you know, he would not that he would do the bare minimum, but he was really, really wasn't incentivized because there was no package that he could attain by the amount of work he did where he get a bonus. So it's like he would come in at nine o'clock and do the bare minimum and then leave at five, punch out. And, you know, since we working together, it's like, hey, man, you only get in, you only get out what you put into this. So, you know, all the times my friends are joking me, it's Saturday, man, come on, it's two o'clock in the afternoon. I'm like, Oh, but this is my this is my legacy. This is my bank account we're talking about now. Mm-hmm. Now he understands it. Now he sees it. Now he also sees the mentality of those people that just don't have. Maybe they haven't had somebody to talk them through that. 
Hmm. So Rich Dad, Poor Dad was great for me on that. The Five Love Languages mm-hmm. was awesome. Yeah. Um, because I think understanding relationship oh attachments. God, I mean, you and I we talked about yeah. that a little bit before the podcast started. Um, there were certain things I did in my relationship that I think being an athlete and having that athlete mentality really kind of incubates you to be selfish because you think that anybody that's in your way of what you need to achieve is taking away from you, not really adding value to you. Um, and a lot of that is relationship wise. Well, if I, if I have to give my girlfriend a lot of attention and time, then she's taking away from what I need to, I need to be focused on me right Mm -hmm. now. I'm like, well, wait a second. You can still be focused on you through a relationship, but it can actually help you evolve more. Mm -hmm. If you start doing or reading up on how to make your relationship better. So I'm not going to sit here and say, Hey, these are the specific things I like in life. This helps. But I think just by being open and, having experiences that you wouldn't normally have, how are you pushing yourself to do things that are not your norm? That opens your eyes. Well, thanks for sharing all that with us, man. Thanks for having me, bro. Yeah. I feel like, uh, these conversations, a lot of times when you talk about intimacy and, and relationship fulfillment, you think about your significant other or your partner, but we get so much fulfillment from having intimate relationships that are vulnerable, talking about really difficult stuff and appreciate you opening up and sharing that with our listeners in the show. And, and uh, he gets into far more granularity in his New York Times bestseller, Life is Not an Accident, a Memoir of Reinvention. And, of course, that will be uh, linked in our show notes as well as all the books that you just gave us. And, and everything that we can we can dig into at this show is packed with utilities. Appreciate it again, man. It was the best. Thank you, brother. Appreciate yep. it, Paul. If you enjoyed Jay and my conversation, please be sure to let us know. Twitter is preferred. Here are two big takeaways for me. Number one, for Jay, sports are more than just winning and losing. He invests in personal growth, advises a portfolio of companies, including the Players' Tribune. He works with brands through his agency. He co-founded, he commentates on college basketball games. But most importantly, he advocates for social equality in sports. And more lately, the NCAA's decoding of the longstanding call in amateurism. Number two, learn how to be empathic. This is arguably Jay's best skill. And my takeaway is that if you're practicing empathy properly, you take out the right or wrong. Continue the conversation with us on social media. You can follow me at Paul Rabel or Jay at Real Jay Williams. And note he has 2 million followers. Be the first to listen to future episodes as well as catch up on previous episodes, including my one-on-one conversation with New England Patriots head coach Bill Belichick, entrepreneur and investor Gary Vaynerchuk, Venus Williams, Drew Brees, Jeremy Lin, and many more. You can find all these episodes and more on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, TuneIn, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your pods. There's a shortcut to our show notes, including Jay Williams' links, his social media handles, businesses, other athlete lists, news, and headlines by visiting suitinguppodcast.com. And shout out to our show's sponsors today, Bombfell, ProFlowers, and Indochino. Thank you very much to all of you. I look forward to getting back up with you and suiting up this time next week.